Good afternoon, everybody. This is John Barrows from Making Happen Mondays. Hopefully you had a fantastic weekend. I had a 50-51. I got my Bruins who lost and my Celtics who won. So I'm pretty happy about the Celtics, a little pissed off about the Bruins. But we are here to have a conversation, and I'm looking forward to this one because it's actually directly relevant to some stuff I'm thinking about these days. Brian Ludwig over at CVAN. How's it going, Brian? Going great. How are you, John? Doing fantastic, my friend. Awesome. You want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself and where you're coming from these days? Absolutely. So I'm a Senior Vice President of Sales at Cvent, an event management software company. Uh, been here uh, 19 years and uh, got a big team of account managers, SDRs, and direct sellers slash you know, hunters, uh, and then technical sales uh, consultant group as well. So a whole bunch of different roles uh, selling across the world. Nice. I love it, man. So first and foremost, and we said, I said this right before we started recording here, 19 years. So I can't remember the last time I met somebody who was in, in, this, in the tech world who stayed in, at the same company for 19 years. So something's got to be going right over at Cvent for you to stay that long. What, what has kept you there so long? And I mean this just from a, like from a business standpoint, right? We all look for a business that kind of the ideal state is you get into an organization that, that shares your values and you grow with it as long as you can and you get keep challenged. Uh, but it's so rare these days. So talk to me about what's kept you at Cvent for, for so long. It's a good question. I get asked it a lot. Um, it's been a long, long journey, right? So when I started with the company, I had just gotten my MBA. And the honest truth is I was in sales before I got the MBA. I went to get the MBA, probably did not stay in sales, <laughs> honestly. And uh, I was looking around and none of the other opportunities were really uh, blowing me away. And there was a girl in my business school program that was going to start working at CVAT. And she said, you got to come meet with these guys. They've got a really amazing management team. They've got a great vision, et cetera, et cetera. So I come in, meet with the CEO and a, and a handful of other people, and I took a shot on it. And at the time, they had no commission plan, no territory management. No, They didn't even have a head of, head of sales. I started the same day as our first VP of sales. Um, and, it went, and, and, and it went well. Like I was one of the original sales guys, one of the first four or five, and I was selling more than the other guys, and things were looking good. Um, despite no uh, no real structure at all. <laughs> yeah. But uh, then the dot-com bubble busted. And uh, we went from about 120. So I got there with 40, 50 people. It grew to 125. We downsized in 2001 to, uh, I don't know, 70 people. We do another round of layoffs down to 40. There's natural attrition because it was a shitty place to work at that point, down to 25. We stayed from 25 to like 35, 40 people for the next two to three years. Okay. And I interviewed. I honestly considered leaving. Yeah. But I kind of liked the battle scars. I liked that we were learning how to be more fiscally responsible, not burn through money the same way we were, like drunken sailors, and build a sustainable, you know, EBITDA margin-based business with, with good growth. So then 30 people became 50, 50 people became 100, 100 became 200. We're a 4,000-person company now from 25 in 2002, 2003. Um, and I'll tell you why I've stayed is because we, we've done a great job of reinventing ourselves along the way. So we were originally kind of a one-trick pony for event registration. We built venue sourcing and strategic means management, all these things, mobile apps and uh, on-site check-in and badging and abstract management, appointment management. I mean, we just keep building stuff and we're doing it either through our own team. We have like 1,500 people in tech or we're buying companies and then integrating them. So between, 
I mean, it's just been such an adventure. We went public. We then got bought by a private equity firm, went private. We, you know, I've opened up, you know, seven or eight international offices. We have built a ton of things. I, uh, I've gotten more and more under my feet from. So every day is different. And I think we've done a really, really good job of hiring great people because everyone that's here, whether they've been here for 19 years like myself and there aren't that many, or whether they're, you know, five years in a job, six months in a the job, they're passionate. They really give a shit about what we're doing, our customers, what we're building. And I think that is the number one reason. So I like kind of that every day is different, but I'm, we've done a great job of surrounding ourselves with passionate people that care about what we're doing. And it makes for a more fun and interesting day. And, and obviously uh, a lot of success for the company and myself. I love it, man. So, and to talk about passion, right? Because I believe firmly, like if you don't believe in what you sell, go find something else to sell, right? Because this is too hard of a profession and to, to not. Um, how do you get, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you look for passion in the hiring process, right? You look for that drive, you look for that passion. What are some of the things that you do to kind of live that, that and, and reinforce that passion for the team, like to keep everybody excited, right? When they're onboarding and those type of things, are there specific things you do to maintain that culture of continuous improvement and drive and passion and love for what you do? Yeah, you know, uh, it's a good question. I think it starts with training. We put a very thorough training program out there. So it's like a one month, um, Ignite program, we call it. They're almost like, like a pledge class, right? They come in wide-eyed and bushy-tailed, and they, it really becomes like their best friends. Many of them are from the greater D.C. area, but a lot of them have moved here, and this becomes like their extended family. Um, you know, a lot of, you know, it's the cliche, you know, work hard, play hard kind of stuff, but um, we do a lot of social events. We have a cool office space with kegs and open kind of glass environments, so everyone's kind of collaborates. There's a great beer garden downstairs. Any given night, there's going to be 10 to 50 people from the company out there hanging out and enjoying each other's company, you know, talking about their weekend, but also talking shop too. Yeah, so uh, I don't know. I think we've, 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 we give them enough opportunity to really mix it up with each other. You know, we do a big incentive retreat um, generally in the Caribbean each year. People are really pumped up to try to get on that, you know, it's just like a president's club. Yeah. We have uh, just a ton of happy hours. Uh, we have a big uh, event called Cvent Connect, which is for our customers. But 500 people from the organization, 100 or so that are going to be in sales in my organization, get to go and be a part of that. So giving them an opportunity to be on stage or in front of high-dollar customers, yeah. I think keeps them really engaged. They all get to travel for their job and go into their territory. You know, it's just it's a myriad of things, John. Yeah, I love it. And, and I think one of the things you brought up, which I, t I really encourage reps to think about is, you know, I think a lot of people are in the grass is greener mentality these days of, oh, you know, they had a couple of layoffs or, hey, there's a better company over there that'll pay me a little bit better. But but sticking with and and also keeping your eyes open to pay attention to what's happening. I mean, one of the things I didn't do enough of when I was a kid and, you know, getting going through business was I didn't pay enough attention of, of what was happening around me so that I could then learn from, like, I wasn't proactively paying attention, you know, like small stuff, like when they rolled out a new commission plan and everybody was pissed off about it. You know what I mean? Like there's an opportunity there to watch how they rolled that out, watch how the reaction was so that later on when you're a leader, you can say, you can pull on that experience and be like, yeah, I remember that. No. Or when they merged with another company, how did they integrate? Right. So I think it, it sounds like you've had, you almost lived your MBA, even, even if you didn't go get your MBA, it sounds like you've been living it for the past 19 years. Yeah. Yeah, sure. Have. And, you know, it's funny, you just touched on something that, you know, 
grass is greener and we have people that will come to me and yeah, look, I'm going to leave and go take this other job for, for five grand more. Right. And, and, and it kills me because a, they don't have appreciation for what we built for them. And, and, and in large part, that's maybe our own fault. We hire a lot of people straight out of school. Yeah. We hire people with experience, the people with experience get people straight out of school. You know, they have the curiosity, which I get. Right. Here's the thing. Everyone that I interview, not everyone, most people that I interview, I get their OTE. I drill in, are they hitting the OT? No, they're not. Generally. Yeah. They'll leave for five grand more in OT. And I said, well, how many people hit it? I don't know. But you didn't ask that question. And then when they peel back the onion and ask the questions, people aren't hitting their OT. Right. Even where they're going. And I know this because I'm t- I interview people all the time and almost no one's hitting their OT. Then I give them the data to turn and say, who gives a shit what the OT is? It's what's the likelihood of hitting it or exceeding it. Don't even worry about OT. What are you actually going to make? Yeah, it's uh, it's it, especially kids out of school. It's like you kind of. It's almost like you do want them to have some experience so they can appreciate what you're what you're handed to them. But at the end of the day, you got to kind of bring them through that. And sometimes they're going to learn, right? I mean, you got to go make that mistake of going somewhere else and coming back and saying, "Oh shit!" Yeah. And we love that too. Uh, we've got a ton of them. By my last count, we literally have forty-five to fifty boomerangs. <laughs> no shit, really. 45 to 50. That's saying something. Across the organization, probably 20 to 25 of them in sales. That's that's saying something. Yeah, and that's a, that's a great story to tell the newbies coming on board, right? Like, yeah, yeah like 40 times. I put them on stage at our sales kickoff. <laughs> nice. I love it. Awesome. Well, let's talk about events, right? Because this is a little bit near and dear to my heart. Like, my team right now is really trying to figure out, you know, all the channels that we do from a sales standpoint, right? You got your outbound prospecting, you got your inbound lead generation, and events are a huge channel for us. Um, but last year, I think we did a, I think we went a little crazy. Like, we went to almost every event we could get our hands on. And I remember we did a lot of activity, but I still can't point to much direct. ROI from an event. And I, and I notice a lot of marketing company, you know, business organizations in general struggling with, with, with really showing a true ROI number from an event standpoint. So, I mean, obviously Cvent from a technology standpoint, it, it helps with that, but in general, how do you look at events from a, and I know it depends on what you sell and those type of things. Some are way more trade show oriented, but in the typical B2B SaaS world where there's some boost there and your target audience is pretty much there. And, and a lot of sales reps look at it as, okay, I'm here to sit at the booth and they're not looking at it as a direct sales opportunity. They're looking at it as a marketing thing. Let me get your badge and scan that. Like, are there some things that you help people reframe their mindset around about how to get the most out of these events and how to show true ROI around them? Yeah, it's a good question. I, and, and I think we're experts at this because we do eat our own dog food. So part of our pitch when we go out in the market is like, look, there's no replacement for live events. It's not going anywhere. I don't care how often we have conversations like this digital one here, which is amazing. There yeah. is no replacement for human connection and the power of that live interaction and what it could do for business. In fact, we share stats with people. The second most influential channel behind a company's website are live events. Wow. And about 24% of the average B2B marketer's budget is spent on live events. There's okay. 6% on web-based events. So 30% is going into events. It's a big category of spend for any you know, CMO or, or VP of marketing, as it should be. Um, you can absolutely drive ROI, pipeline generation, faster closes, et cetera, with sales. Excuse me, with events. Of course, you can. 
sales with the mass. So um, we, as an example, use our technology for two different types of events, events we host and events we go to. And those are two different things. So for events that we host, we invite people, we have 4,000 people to a CBEN Connect conference. But forget about that one. That one's kind of obvious. We go and do 500-ish luncheons. We call them product seminars. Okay. Like through our technology, you know, 1,000 people in the greater Chicago area that I think have a potential need for our stuff. And we'll go to the Magianos one day, then we're to Roos Chris the next day, then we're to this one, that one, et cetera. And I get 25 to 45 people to join one of my sales reps for lunch. Okay. And I used to personally run around and do these left, right, center. Get to 40, 50 people in the room, let them network with each other a little bit, feed them lunch, do dog and pony show. Of course, showcasing our technology at the same time. We have that attendance and survey data that they give us through an app all feeding straight back into our CRM, which of course is Salesforce. And we update their campaigns that they're associated with. We then have reporting from a marketing standpoint where we look at attribution, not influence. We'll look at influence too. How much money closed from anyone that went to a product seminar in 2018? I could pull that, but that's almost giving it too much credit. So we have this time decay attribution model. So if I met you at that lunch, but I'd also gotten you in through this channel, that channel, whatever. I'm going to split up that $20,000 sale across the six different channels. And I'm going to get a little bit more to the newer stuff versus the older stuff. But then I'm also going to look at what if I talk to you and Lucas, I got you from these three channels and I got Lucas from these, this one channel. And then you drove the sale, not Lucas. Yeah. Right. So I had 27 touch points with you in Salesforce and Lucas, I had two. Okay. I'm going to put far more of the weight to the event or to whatever channel it was to you right. versus Lucas, because clearly you were driving the sale. So we look at activity in Salesforce, then we split up how much weight we're giving to each side. And then we do this time decay model. So we're pretty sophisticated about it. So we literally can have a stack rank of which channels are actually driving business. And then within the channel, I'll look at the 150 trade shows that we go to, and I literally get an attribution number for each and every one of them and the number of leads that we produce. So like a raw number, we have 42 leads from that. The attribution was, you know, $1.3 million. So we can decide, you know, A, do events really deliver? The answer is yes. But B, eh, maybe we want to try 15 new events and not go to these 10 anymore. Yep. Just that insight to be able to make those tough calls on where, where we should cut, you know, marketing spend. I love it. I mean, cause that's what we were saying. Like Morgan, it's funny because Morgan, you know, if we have a deal in the pipeline and Morgan then meets that person at an event, it's an accelerator, no question about it. But you know, the attributes, like you say, where, you know, the influence is all over the place. It's like, where is the heaviest influence at what stage of the sales process that we can attribute it to? Because right. um, there's yeah. Like, hey, these are the people I want to meet. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Like, what are your reps? Say it's just a typical trade. Say it's not one of your events. Say you're going to a trade show. What's a, what do your reps do? Like when they're walking around, like how do they prep? And then what what is their plan during that event to get the most out of it? That then you can take that data and put it into C event four. Like what are, what are some of the best practices you have from a, an event execution standpoint? Yeah, really good question. So, um, 
there's so many things you can do. I mean, we see so many of our competitors or just people in general that go to a trade show. They dutifully show up to the booth the first day. They've got their golf shirt that has their company logo on it. And they sit there and it's kind of like someone looks them in the eye. Hey, do you have a question? And really, and they're on their phones. Right. That is the last thing you're going to do, right? You're going to invest, well, I don't know, we invest twenty to $40,000 for every show we go to and we go to one hundred fifty. So it's a $6 million spend to go to these shows. So we do a lot of things. One, we try to get the pre-show list. Sometimes you can, sometimes you can't. A lot of times they'll just give you the company. I have a team in India that will research all the companies and names if we have them, but get the email, phone number, title, get everything that we need. Scrub it, load it up, deliver it to my SDRs ahead of the show. Okay. It will then invite people to have one-on-one meetings at the show. We'll manage calendars for all of that. Two, if it's a big enough show, maybe our, uh, out of those 150, maybe there's 40 where we will do an event at the show. Because okay. again, we have an event. So we will have a reception or sit-down dinner or maybe a series of sit-down dinners with high-value high prospects and, and clients and get them in that kind of environment. So when we're calling, we're not just saying, hey, meet us at booth 614. We're going to show the latest and greatest. It's and... Tuesday night, we'd love to invite you to a reception. This company's going to be there. That company's going to be there. So forth and so on. So that helps. When we're at the show, we give every rep here knows, but we take them and we do pull-up meetings with the six that are man in the booth, the three, the 20. Obviously, each show is different in terms of number of people. And we give them a pep talk on exactly what's expected of them. You know, one, you're, you're smiling, you're out in the aisle, you're pulling people in, right? Two, your, um, what, what decks do you have? What collateral do you have? Let's make sure everyone's equipped with the right stuff. Which of our, we were in our blue shirt first day, then black, then blue. I mean, just full game plan. Oh, there's six stations at this booth. You're in the back left. You're in the back right. You're here. You're here. Just so that you get there and it's all business. Then we do not scribble on the back of business cards to take notes. We instead use our own technology. Steven has something called universal lead capture. So the concept is don't pay for lead capture from the organizer of that event, that event, that event. Why? It's going to be a different process every single time. This one's going to give you back a ticker tape. This one's going to give you back an Excel file. This one's going to give you back a PDF with the data. Scrubbing it and getting it into your CRM so you can have fast follow-ups, almost impossible. So we turn and say, no, equip your sales team and marketing team that goes to 100 shows, that goes to 20 shows, that goes to 500 shows, like Cisco goes to 1,000 shows. Why not use the same technology, customize the questions that you guys care about when you're talking to an attendee of the show, score it, and then have it automatically flow into Marketo, HubSpot, Eloqua, Salesforce Dynamics, you know, Salesforce, of course, et cetera, et cetera. Because the number one thing that I hear from people is like, look, yeah, we got a thousand leads from all the trade shows we went to. And you know the stats, like 70% of them don't even get a follow-up. Yeah. So then that, that million dollars they spent, $2 million, $5 million, whatever it is, money down the toilet. So our whole pitch is like get consistency, give people the right tools, have it flow straight into the CRM because here's the thing. I might have, or let's say this rep Johnny over here might have met the person at the show, but it may not be his lead to follow up with. I don't want to wait till he gets back and cleans the cars and gets him in. It's going to be three weeks before Sally, who's sitting over here, can follow up on that lead. I've got her following up the next day. And the next guy booth that's out that the uh, prospect network is not doing the same thing. 
So speed of follow-up, getting into the CRM, it is absolutely the, the most critical but most often overlooked part of the process. How do you, so how do you then differentiate or balance the quality versus the quantity follow-up? So, cause I'll, I'll example, Dreamforce, yeah. right? I go to Dreamforce and I get fucking accosted as I walk through the aisles, right? Like nobody even talks to me. They're just scanning my badge. And I get like 700 emails from reps after Dreamforce saying it was great meeting you at Dreamforce. And then this data dump of all the crap that I, I probably didn't even talk to them about. And literally, I don't even care if it's somebody I actually did meet because I don't remember because I met 700 people there, even if it is somebody I did meet. Um, if it says it was great meeting you at Dreamforce and it kind of looks like a can thing, I, I delete every single one of them. So do you have a, an approach where you section out and say, hey, you know, these send a real personalized follow up to versus these put into a sequence or a cadence or whatever it is? Yeah. So a couple of things. I mean, one, again, there's qualifying questions in that scan. So you can score the hotness, what you talk to them about, et cetera. So. What, and Dreamforce is a different animal, right? I go there every year as well. Like most shows are not, you know, 80,000 people and, you know, all the exhibitors. And, and see, half of that is is the booth staff just scanning people to win a, a car or to win a trip or whatever it is. Those should go into a drift nurture campaign, right? The ones that had a demo and a real conversation at the booth should also be scanned, but properly scored. So it's kind of like, well, these two were just scanning people as they walked by. We're not going to do direct follow-up at the rep level because reps are expensive and I don't want them chasing stuff that's not warm enough. That's not warm enough. However, if you had a sit down with someone for 30 minutes to go through some sort of challenge you're having, they showed you a piece of software that would pose a solution, of course, that should be scored. The rep that's following up has all the details of that conversation that you have with that sales professional and that follow-up's on point and you'd probably respond because they would reference what you guys talked about, reference the pain that you shared, the problem they can solve. And you're off to the races. I love it. What? So, what do you think the biggest mistake uh, reps do at events uh, that that you see consistently outside of your team? I mean, your team, you got pretty yeah. popular here, but they what screw, do you think? They screw around on their phone at the booth, yeah. show up for stuff late, and they don't take advantage of all the other opportunities at an event. Right? There's the new attendee breakfast the first day. There's, there's times that this trade show floor is closed. Now, not at every event, like a Dreamforce as an example. If you only pay for booth staff, they can't go to the sessions. But tons of other shows you can't, right? So you go to all the sessions. You get in your seat two minutes ahead of time, five minutes ahead of time. Have a conversation with the person on the left, person to the right. Pay attention to people that ask great questions that you can tell they're thinking uh, in, a, in a certain way. Yeah. You kind of cost them out in the hallway when they're getting coffee. You follow people, you go to the lunches, you go to the networking events at night. A lot of people will turn and say, well, you know what? I was so jammed up at the show all day. I don't have time to go to the networking event at night and the breakfast in the morning. That's the worst mistake you can make. Yeah. You, you have such an opportunity. If every single, if you went to 10 sessions, got two cards in each session, that's another 20. You go to four or five other events around the event, you get four or five cards in each of those. That's another 16. Now you got 36 cards on top of the 40 or 50 that you naturally got on the trade show floor. Now, what if you multiply that by 10 people that all went to represent your company at a show? It makes a massive difference. Well, I, and I find out, I find the, the, the networking, if you will, and the, the results out of those off 
prime times, you know, the events in the evening and the breakfast and where you can actually have conversations with people as opposed to sitting in a booth and trying to get their attention while 700 people walk by. I found those conversion ratios are actually way higher than the ones that are at the booth in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. you're spot on. I love it. Um, so what do you do? Uh, this is personal curiosity. Do you have any, like, what do you do at booths to, do, to, to draw people in? I mean, I know you're driving a lot of people in the pre thing to say, Hey, come meet us here or go have a meeting there or whatever it is. But you know, everybody's always looking to differentiate themselves to, to just attract people of the masses um, outside of the quality of the product and the look and feel of, of what you're doing. Do you guys have any like things that, that, that bring people in, if you will? I mean, it's, it's going to sound stupid. It's something as simple as eye contact. You make eye contact with someone that's walking by and they slightly smile. You turn and say, hey, have you heard of Seaman? Nope. Yeah, yeah, I know you guys a little bit. You suck them in. You start having a conversation. But it's all about making eye contact. If you don't, you got to lock in and then they can't look away. And start having a conversation. Two, yep. it's, again, stupid. We put candy at our front little check-in station. Yep. And people will even come up and be like, oh, I'm so sorry. Can I just grab that Kit Kat? I don't know. You can grab it, but you got it. What do you know about us? <laughs> and, you, and you know, you're doing a cool way. You could actually start conversations. I've closed deals from people that were stopping to get the Kit Kat, like legitimately. Yeah. I mean, there's that, recipro- there's that reciprocity thing there. I mean, you know, I actually train from negotiation standpoint, give gets right. Like there, it's a human condition when, when, when somebody asks you for something, there's that fleeting moment that they ob- feel obligated to give you something in return. And if you ask for it right then and there, so that's why, like, when they grab that thing, there's that obligation to at least stand there for a couple of seconds and listen to what you got. So capitalize on it, right? And then there's kind of an in-between. I was mentioning, you know, some shows get an event, like a reception, and some don't. Some I have the the in-between where I'll have, like, a happy hour or little sandwiches and stuff at the booth at, like, 5 o'clock. The show closes at 6 o'clock on, like, a middle day. And then we market it. We hand out little cards to people and tell them to come back at five or six o'clock. It's not as expensive as renting out a restaurant or a hotel, but you get a little buzz and then people sort of see a bunch of people, they come by and, uh, and that's, that's another uh, very popular option. Cool, man. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, unique things that you're doing. So you 30% goes towards events and that drives revenue. What are some things from just a sales team standpoint that you're seeing that your team is doing right now that's working to, to drive new business into that pipeline, like from a, either a messaging or an approach standpoint, is there anything, some new stuff that you're seeing right now that's working? A bunch of different strategies we, we have. Um, one thing that I think we're really good at is, showcasing our stuff live. So again, this is leveraging India. I got a team in India, 13 people. All they do is build out samples, sample event website and registration form, a sample mobile app, a sample sort of iPad check-in experience so that when my sales rep is demoing you, our solution, it's not theoretical. I'm showing you your stuff in my environment. I could never do this without a team that I built to serve this function. So the next competitor is not coming in with the same stuff. I absolutely know. And then they're sitting there going like, A, wow, this, this company really cares about my business. But B, I can fully envision leveraging their technology. And I saw exactly what it could look like and how it could operate in that meeting that I had with them. So that's, that's game changing stuff for us. Um, other strategies that we've been employing are um, to have 
subject matter experts and overlays. I kind of resisted this because I really, really care about my team knowing their products and their solution cold. I think there's no replacement for that because you can't have a technical resource on every call, maybe on demos, but all follow-up. But it's so big. Our platforms become so wide and so robust that I have created a team of technical sales consultants that work sort of like as overlays that get brought in to be that second voice. You know, it's not a salesperson that's blowing, blowing smoke. It's a real technical person that can help them think about, you know, all the different ways that the product could or maybe is not a good fit. Um, I think that's helped. That's helped us ramp up new reps. In the old days, if the rep didn't know the product deeply, they're going to have a tough time closing. Now they kind of have the second person riding along with them that can help um, deals quicker. Um, another really awesome strategy for us is, um, you know, as you said a minute ago, give, get. So we're always pushing for multi-year deals. Okay. It's not because customers don't renew with us. We have a high renewal rate. But if I have a three-year deal instead of a one-year deal, it's just less to do with that customer one year from now. And I can rely on there's $10,000 it's hitting for a second year. We're just going to focus on giving them great service, great consultation on getting the most out of the software and not push paper around. And I know it's via DocuSign. It's easier now. But having that visibility and knowing that I've got four years of this relationship because that's what we sold up front. And, of course, we reward that with lower pricing. So we have stats and metrics galore on what is our multi-year deal rate, what's the average term length, how much of a discount do you need to do to give to go from three to four, from four to five, et cetera. It's a huge part of our culture. So let me ask you this. So this is interesting on your, like, let's talk about the urgency factor, right? Because I, I think your, your wheelhouse is somebody who's running 20, 30, 40, 50 events on a yearly basis, right? I, look, I, I'll sell someone, sell them, you know, doing one event with 300 people and they might buy a $10,000, $12,000 license. So that so that's my point, right? So now, say you got say so so kind of wheelhouse is somebody who's doing a shitload of them and they're off right and all that other stuff. But then there's the all right, couple events a year type of stuff. Um, how do what? How do you coach your reps on creating urgency, if you will? If you know what, Brian, I appreciate this, but really, our, we don't have an event until November right now. So why don't we talk in? Why don't we talk in September? <laughs> we're really going to start planning our our November session here. Our, I, I mean, outside of, hey, it's better to plan early so that you don't, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, are there some things that you do to help drive urgencies to get that person bought in a little bit earlier? Because I, I work with a lot of clients who have that problem, right? Where it's like, it's not like, yeah, but we're not doing that for another year. So let's talk then. Whereas they could absolutely apply it now and see some benefits to it. But their head says, let's not do that until that's a thing. So how do you create urgency over at CVM? Couple, couple different things. I mean, one, I'm going to do the backwards math with them. So events are a little bit unique in that, look, my event's in October. I'm not launching registration in October. Right. So sometimes people don't even think that way. So it's like, okay, you have an October event. Well, when do you launch registration historically? Oh, well, we like to get our reg site up and running in uh, June. Okay, great. So how many people get involved in that process and reviewing it, making sure you have your price points, your speakers, your agendas, your sessions, your floor map, your exhibitors, blah, 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 blah. Oh, a lot of people like to look at it. Well, listen, if you're going to launch something in the middle of June, you need to start building it in like early May, mid-May at the very latest, you have enough time for people to look through it. And if you need to launch something in mid-May, you probably should sign paperwork and get started so you get trained and get comfortable with it by middle of April. So actually, you should have signed two weeks ago. <laughs> and that's an October event. Right. 
right. and I can almost always create <laughs> the urgency going back using all those steps. Now, let's just say the event's not till April sure. of next year, and they don't need to launch it till December. Now it's hard, right? Because here we are sitting in April, right. and I want them to sign before December. Yeah. So then I'd say, look, you want three months of getting comfortable, you know, training, getting all the different people on board. We can set up user roles and permissions and get all the great, all the best artwork in the account so that the non-technical people have everything that they need, blah, blah, blah. But then, you know, we'll just do some traditional old school stuff. Like, look, Q4, we have a major release coming out, right? I, I, I don't know yet, but I've been in a few meetings. There's going to be a price increase, yeah. right? That kind of thing. Yeah. Um, or look, I've given you really aggressive pricing because you told me you were burned on event tech before, blah, blah, blah. But when I give pricing like this, I can only have it out there for 30 days, or maybe 60 days, 90 days. I mean, I'll use whatever is appropriate based on when I legitimately think or when the sales rep legitimately thinks they can close. So price increases, low pricing can only be out there for a little bit, using the event dates against them to bring back the timeline. Cool. Uh, lots of different things. I love it, man. Um, Cool. I mean, uh, we're, we're kind of close to the 30 minute range here. Anything else you want to kind of chat about or things that's top of mind right now that you're working on? The other thing, the only other thing that's a little bit newer to us, but, but we're having some success with it, but it's tricky. So we're owned by Vista and, you know, they kind of have a playbook of different things they like to do. We have, you know, so much of what they like we were already doing. So they brought us a few ideas that were like, you know what, we, we really should put that in place. One of it is, one of them is we put a CPQ system in place. Okay. So Salesforce bought steel bricks. It's now CPQ. We put it in place so that I can uh, approve deals or not approve deals, right? So we have to go to manager. If it's greater than 20%, it goes to a VP level. If it's 30%, this, that, and the other. Certain SKUs can't be discounted at all. Other ones can. And and look, we're, we're pretty flexible with the approvals, but I get to inspect the deal, drill in, give my insights, maybe press them to hold the line or do this, that, and the other. So that that's a major change that I think has fundamentally helped us now discount less right. and see reps that have uh, are, are bigger offenders and then make you know take corrective actions with them. Number two, the other thing that they're bringing to us is this concept of a year-over-year price increase. So say I've got a great customer, they're happy, they're going to renew, they paid $10,000. Well, now in the rule, I should make it higher. So sure, make it 10, five or 11, but also then show a pattern that look, I'm gonna give everyone a 5% raise here. Right. It's, you know, it's gonna be even more than that. So costs are going up. I need to bake an increase. And look, we signed software contracts with people and we signed a three-year deal. And there's a 5% increase year over year, or 3% or sometimes 7%. And we weren't doing that. In fact, we were going the other way. Sign a three-year deal, the price is going to be lower. Sign a two-year deal, it's going to be lower, but not as low. And we still do that. Yeah. But then have it still escalate from there. So you might earn yourself a better price in a four-year deal, but that doesn't take away the fact that it needs to accelerate. Now, if you walk in to future years, knowing that, hey, most of our deals are going to have a 5% uplift yeah. before I even sell a new dollar, well, that allows us to get to our 20% plus growth that we've been experiencing for the last 15 years, it'll be even easier to do so because we're going to have 5% that's just coming naturally. So that, that's a big focus. And I have uh, KPIs to track all of this very closely. No, I love it. But what's the, what's the objection handling stuff you go through with the team to push to, for the clients to push back on that? Be like, Hey, what the hell? You know, I, I mean, you know, obviously we're improving our, and we're adding these things, but is there a specific talk track you have around that objection? Why should I 
I pay more every year when I don't even know what you guys are going to do in the next year? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, there's a ton of different, different playbooks there, but uh, generally I have some reps that are better at it than others. So I put them up in front of the team, but uh, you know, for starters, it's like, look, it's price protection. I do a two year deal shit three years from now. I could double my price with contracts for us, but it's also for you. And this 4% that I'm putting here, that's, that's nothing in the grand scheme of things. That's what all software companies do. And sometimes they even blame Vista. Look, we got a private equity firm. They want us to plow more money back into product development and features that are going to serve your needs. Yeah. I'm going to be better able to do that if we just get a nominal increase in the price year over year. And, and, but at the end of the day, I could talk to them blue in the face. I, I really love to showcase reps that are having success. So we use Slack. There's channels where they're sharing that stuff. But then in like the biweekly meetings, I put them up on a pedestal and have them tell the story. Love it. Yeah, and I think that that internal knowledge of being able to share that internal knowledge from the people who are doing it right and sharing those stories is easy yeah. so everybody gets it. So awesome, man. Well, I love this. I mean, I'm actually, it's funny because I'm going to have my CRO uh, take a look at Cvent a little bit more after this conversation because we're right. doing exactly what you're, what you're talking about, which is we're trying to assign influence in a deal and understand exactly what influenced that deal and how much of my influence versus Morgan's and, and also the same thing with webinars and stuff like that. It's like, how do you get, you know, do that follow-up? Cause I think the stats are something ridiculous where like after you do an event, you know, say, say you did a webinar and it kicked ass, right? If you don't follow up like the next day or friggin' the next hour for crying out loud and you try to go after it a week later, it's pretty much not even worth it at that point. That's so, right. right? I mean, when we go and do a webinar or a seminar and we do a ton. I talked about the 500 seminars. Then I do 800 webinars. Yeah. I have two seven webinars per day with like 15, 20 people. Yeah. My sales rep wakes up now. We don't get to it in the next hour. But my sales rep wakes up the next morning in CRM, yep. is all the stuff, your survey answers, all the details, perfectly open task for them to just plow through it. So that it's never longer than a day. Yeah, and that's, I mean, yeah, that's all the difference different. in the world. Inbound leads or influence, right? Because we're in such a short uh, attention span world right now, right? Where even if I had, like, one of the things we did a webinar about, uh, you know, at the end of last year, and it was just, we just kind of did it because, hey, we're trying this new messaging framework out, right? So we did a messaging slash cold call webinar. Fucking 2,000 people showed up to this. No, 2,000 people registered for it. 1,000 people showed up to it. And we dropped a fire, but but we because we didn't have a process around it, you know what I mean? Because we were just kind of like, hey, let's let's test the waters here. Our follow-up, I can't, I can't push a button right now and say what I got out of that webinar. 1,000 people. I had 1,000 people who were like, that was awesome. And I can't tell you what I drove from a revenue standpoint or what the ROI of that webinar was for us, which drives me batshit crazy. So. <laughs> Let me give you a simple thing that most people don't do. But again, we're, we're experts at this. So when you had 1,000 people attend, you probably had 1,800 sign up. Yeah, 2,000. Yeah. Right? So who's calling the 1,000 no-shows? Right. Those are great leads, too. They were hand raisers. They couldn't make it. You can get them to something else. People just let the no-shows fall into the netherland. Uh, we're all over them. Those are great. Cool. Well, how can people find out more about what you're doing these days and get in touch with you? And I know you're hiring a lot. So any, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, cvent.com, cvent.com is the website or on LinkedIn or Twitter or Facebook. We're everywhere. And, uh, yeah, we're hiring a ton of people. We'll probably hire, uh, we'll hire 500 people this year. Nice. Things, right. things are going great. And, uh, that's how you get a hold of us.
I was going to say onward and upward, man. Good for you guys. Well, psyched to hear that you stuck it out, right? Because uh, tw- being the 25th person and now it's, uh, what, what is it again? How many total? Uh, 4,000. 4,000. I'm number five now, so there's four people that have been here longer. That's pretty badass, man. So good for you for sticking it out and, and again, learning less than everybody else. The grass isn't always greener on the other sides, my friends, and learn from every single interaction that you have in a business. Yep. Very cool. All right, everybody. Well, thank you very much for listening. Hopefully you got some value out of this. And uh, if you do nothing else today, go make somebody smile. If you make somebody smile, at least your day was a little bit better than everybody else's. Or you can make somebody else's day a little bit better than everybody else's. All right. Have a great week, everybody. Thank you very much, Brian. Make it happen. Thanks, John.